From HuffPost Canada, you're listening to Born and Raised, a podcast about children of immigrants living in Canada. I guess we'll start with the first story, mm-hmm. the porn story. Which one is this again? Can you remind me? How many porn stories do you have? Hey, it's Alicia Sani. And I'm Aldenato. And from the sound of it, things are heating up in here. Oh, yeah. And we're keeping it spicy for the whole episode because we're covering making love, aka sex. So just a heads up, this episode will contain sexual content. So listen at your own discretion or indiscretion. And on that note, here's our first one from Tony Tran. He's a 20-something actor and barista living in Toronto, and his parents are from South Vietnam. So the Pornhub story, so basically, uh, my parents, well, you know, they're older, they don't really know technology, they would ask me to, you know, fix up their computer. I remember the first time I was helping fix their computer, and I clicked Google Chrome, and in the tab, it was like, Pornhub, but you know how like Google Chrome has those like preview yeah. sections? Oh, no. I'm like, I'm like, there is Pornhub right there. Oof. And I'm like, oh. And I looked at my mom. She She's, was right beside you. She was like, so, like, like fix my computer because she wants to watch these like Vietnamese soap operas that was, that was also on the interwebs. And I looked at her. I guess she was hoping I was like, I would brush it off or not even think about it. I was fairly young. I, was, I think I was still in high school too. Like a few years after that, I was still like another computer fix up because they keep fucking up their computers <laughs> for some reason. And it popped up. Like they forgot to reset the browser, obviously. And it was like Pornhub and like, oh my God, pornography. And it was like... I think it was like two blonde girls doing something. Oh my god, I'm it like, was lesbian porn. It was porn. lesbian porn too. I'm like, what the hell? And I see the strange thing is, I don't know if it's just my mom or just my dad or they both watch they it. both watching it at the same time? Is that cute? I, I think so. I think it's really cute. Yeah. Just like an older married couple watching lesbian porn together. I was like, <laughs> whoa. Hardcore. Progressive. Very progressive. Yeah. Um, so it popped up. I'm like, Mom. And she was like, what? She's like, she's just like, it's just like bad stuff. Don't look at it. I'm like, what? I can't bad stuff? It's like bad stuff. Yeah. It's like as of treating me like a child, like I don't know what sex is. She's like, no, it's okay. It's okay. I'm like, what? Mom. And this is all in Vietnamese. So it was like slightly broken language on both sides of the family. And, you know, it's like, you don't, you don't talk about it. It's just like, yeah, there's pornography. As a second generation immigrant, so like a child, my parents are immigrants. Um, I think my sex education was based on the internet because my parents didn't know how to teach it. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's also mostly a language barrier because if I ask, what is that? And I think in their head, this is my imagination, my parents are like, ah, crap. I have to show them a photo. Do I take out the porn DVDs? I think they trusted the Canadian education system enough. Like, they will teach, so it's fine. Oh, that is such an awkward moment. Has anything like that ever happened to you, Al? Kinda. So I've been staying with my mom lately and, you know, chilling, relaxing in my childhood room a lot. Uh, and in my room, a lot of folks use it. Like, my mom uses it, my sister uses it. There's always someone in there. One night, I just came home. I was like, I'm exhausted. I'm going to get into my pajamas. I opened my closet door and I saw this big hulking thing that goes bzzz. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know who it belongs to. I'm too afraid to bring it up. Just like Tony, I'm like, what do I even say? So I'm just going to never use my closet again. Good call. Yeah, I hope so. 
How about you, Alicia? Did Tony's problems hit home? Well, the first time I went on vacation with my boyfriend, I was in an Airbnb in California. We were lying down, getting a little frisky. Hey. But nothing, you know, too rated R at this point. Okay, like third base. And this loud buzzing came from my phone. Oh, oh not, your phone. Okay. Not like what you were experiencing, but it was my mom. And she texted me at the exact moment it was getting hot and heavy. Oh, my God. And it was this giant bitmoji because we text pretty much only in bitmoji. <laughs> and it was like her pointing her finger and it said, abstinence is always the right choice. Oh, no. It's like she knew. Yeah, her mom's senses were like tingling. Yeah, like I'm about to take my pants off and I get that text. So like, wait, what did you reply? Well, I replied hours later with a heart. <laughs> I didn't know what else to say. And did she leave it at that or? Yeah, we didn't talk about it after that. Now it's clear from both of our stories that every immigrant family is going to treat sex differently. Like, in my own case, sex ed was just not there. It was non-existent. I wanted to get a sense of how different it was for everyone, so we talked to a lot of second-geners about sex. Like, a lot. And here's what a few of them had to say about their first sexual experiences. I approached my mom, and I was just like, I'm, I told her, like, this, like, I was... I mean, for lack of a better term, rubbing myself <laughs> on the floor slash, slash mattress. And she flew off the handle. And and this is like very much like a theme of like my Filipino upbringing. You're not allowed to do this because I, because I say so. I lost my virginity in his car, parked in a parking lot. And so he would come pick me up and I would have to sneak out or just leave and not tell my mom where I was going and she'd be mad all the time. And then we would park at this, this park in Burlington um, at nighttime, obviously, and then, yeah, I was like, oh, are we still going to, like, hang out when we go to college? And he was like, no. Uh, my dad and I are just walking around a park, and earlier that night, I had uh, watched that 70s show. There's a joke about uh, Fez being a virgin, and there's a laugh track, so I knew it was a joke, but I didn't get it because I was eight. I just asked him, Dad, what's a virgin? He told me, well, son, uh, a virgin is someone who hasn't had sex yet. And I was like, cool. I still don't get the joke. So it sounds like there was a lot of hiding. Either parents hiding from kids or kids hiding from parents. Or in that last guy's case, just getting an answer, but not the whole story. Al, are there any ideas on why exploring sexuality is challenging for second gen kids like us? Honestly, Alicia, I just think there's more to navigate with us, right? Because shame hurts deep, but when taboos are in your culture, they feel really taboo. Like, parental disapproval isn't just, oh yeah, my mom and dad, they don't feel proud about me, they don't approve of what I do. It really does feel like your whole culture is disappointed. Does that make sense? Yeah, I completely agree. And I feel like for me growing up, of course I knew my parents loved each other, but I didn't see this overt intimacy or affection between them. Like they weren't canoodling on the couch, they weren't kissing, holding hands in public. It seemed very faux pas for them to do that. So it was, you know, I, because I didn't see that, I didn't think it was appropriate. In my experience, I always felt that quote unquote Canadian kids that I knew, 
they could talk about sex with their parents. Like my impression was that they would go home, they could have the talk. It was a rite of passage for them, but I couldn't access that. Right. And it's not like, you know, immigrant parents are anti-sex necessarily. No, not at all. It's just they might not feel comfortable talking about it. But of course, there are immigrant families who do feel comfortable about talking about certain aspects of of sex, for example, you know, maybe not sexual partners or sex positions, like, <laughs> but they'll talk about family planning, contraception, how to have safe sex, stuff like that. Actually, sexologist Dr. Jess O'Reilly is a perfect example of that. Her dad is Irish and her mom is Chinese by way of Jamaica. Growing up, Jess learned to be private about sex, but not prudish. I can't speak for all Chinese Jamaicans. I can just speak from my own experience. And I, I can say that, for instance, my mom and her sisters are shy around sex publicly, but behind closed doors, they're more open. I remember my mom not specifically talking about sex, but laying the foundation for healthy sexuality in many ways. So for example, if I were to touch myself, for example, she would say that's something you have to do in your room. So she didn't foster shame around it. There was certainly a degree of secrecy, but you know, social norms and all, you're not supposed to touch yourself in public. I also recall her buying me some books, like where did I come from and what's happening to me? So this was all about you know, how a baby is conceived. They were old, they had little cartoons in them, they were rather funny. There were full nude images of how a woman's and a man's body progresses over time through puberty. There's a unique challenge for children of immigrant parents because we're often pulled in two directions. On one hand, we want to assimilate, we want to be Canadian, we want to fit in. And on the other hand, we do see the value in our background and in the culture. And we respect, we have, you know, I think oftentimes a great respect for our parents, even if we don't always show it in our teenage years. And so I think that reconciling those per potentially disparate perspectives takes a little bit more work. And I think this is where teachers come in. So, for example, if we're teaching about condom use, we can teach how a condom works, we can talk about its efficacy rates, we can provide students with the language they need in order to enact those healthy behaviors. And we also need to encourage them to consider how condom use fits into their own personal values, to their familial values, to their religious values. Because we're not saying you must have sex and have and use condoms. We're saying here is what condoms do to reduce the risk of STIs, to reduce the risk of pregnancies, but pregnancy. But we also want you to consider how you feel. If you don't see yourself reflected in the scenarios, in the safer sex education, you're probably going to stop listening. And I believe that sex education is a life or death matter. We know that it's not only about preventing pregnancy, and we know that it's not only about reducing the risk of STI transmission, but sex education is consent education, it's relationship education, it's confidence education. We are laying the foundational skills from a young age for young people to feel confident in their bodies. Sure, people are gonna have stories that they're, you know, their parents who were immigrants refused to talk about sex. That is the case in some cases, but it is not always the case. You will find that in cultures that are perceived to be sexually repressive, behind closed doors, the communication can in fact be better than in cultures that are hypersexual and where sexuality is ubiquitous like here in Canada. 
So I think Jess got to the heart of it. It's about being yourself and exploring your sexuality, but also being respectful of your culture. Now, obviously, this is way easier said than done, especially when it has to do with something as intimate as sex. Oh, yeah. And sometimes we're even the ones who are re-educating our parents. Take what our next guest, Mari Ramsaywak, learned as a kid. Oh, one of the myths that I learned from home that I found out later to, to be completely untrue was um, the myth of the, the hymen. My name is Mari Ramsaywak. I use they, them pronouns. I am a disabled and non-binary writer, I guess. Um, my family is from the Caribbean, Trinidad and Guyana, um, but I was born here. Um, my mother, I don't think she received a lot of sex ed. Um, she dropped out of school pretty young, and so, like myself, we both didn't receive that kind of high-level sex- sexual education that was actually about sex. I was born with, um, the full name is lipomyelomeningocele uh, spina bifida. And so that is a type of spina bifida where a cyst developed on my spine, uh, on my spinal cord, but it affects the way that I use the bathroom. It affects, um, whether I can grow muscles in my legs. I also dealt with incontinence and physical activity exacerbated that. To go to gym class would then let everybody know I was disabled because I would have accidents in gym class. And so um, I had to be the one to kind of advocate for myself and say, I cannot do gym class. I remember having that conversation with my guidance counselor and they were like, well, if you don't do gym class here, you're gonna have to find some other way to get those health classes. Um, and they didn't really give me any alternatives. They didn't point me to any extracurricular resources. So I just completely missed out on a formal sexual education. So my mom was taught that the hymen um, like covered your vagina basically and that you know when you had sex it broke or whatever. She also believed that if you used a tampon that would break your hymen and you would no longer be a virgin which as we know is not true i remember having a conversation with my mother one day about it years later and i was getting into sexual education and you know actually being part of um like the sex posi or sex positive movement and my mother started asking me questions about it and we had one conversation where I actually explained how the hymen worked and the hymen doesn't work like that. that it's more of a crescent shape and that you can put in a tampon and it doesn't have to touch the hymen. She was surprised that there was so much that she didn't know about sex. I think she was kind of under the assumption that sex was relatively simple, you know, there's penis and a vagina and that's that sex um after that it was literally just that one little bit of information that I gave her and then after a while she was like I really need you to stop saying hymen because I'm uncomfortable and so we just kind of um we don't really talk about it still but it's it's a work in progress honestly I'm impressed with Mari's mom She opened up the conversation. 
That's really the hardest part. And if I were in her shoes, I don't know if I could have done that. Yeah, and I'm doubly impressed by the fact that she unlearned something. It is really hard to take something that you thought was a truth and be like, no, that isn't quite it. And listening to this story made me realize parents are people too. Starting these dialogues will always lead to something bigger. And I really hope from now on, Mari and their mom keep talking. Okay, but Al, what if you learn a little bit too much from your parents? Oh no, let's not go there. I mean, I don't want to imagine it either. Yeah, let's, let's just, keep it moving. Let's keep it moving, you're right. <laughs> But being open and meeting your parents halfway on something like this, like this kind of conversation is huge. Yes. So if you can meet them halfway and they can meet you halfway, it's a win-win. Yeah, and everybody's happy. But Alicia, all this has me wondering, how do we even start these relationships? How do we open that healthy dialogue where everybody feels seen and safe? Because it can't just look like, hey, dad, how do you have sex? Right? Yeah, obviously not. <laughs> so we asked sexologist Dr. Jess O'Reilly to answer some questions from a few second geners. How do you have sex when you live with your parents at home? Do you you have that conversation with them? How does that look like? Is this an adult? This is an adult, yeah. These are all from adults. I'm an old school thinker in that I believe if it's their house, their rules. <laughs> and so if they don't want you, for example, to have your partner sleep over or they want you to sleep in separate beds, even if you've already lived together, if you're going to live in their house, you're going to have to follow their rules. Uh, what does it mean when someone has a type versus fetishizing, fetishizing someone? Oh, How can you spot fetishizing red flags? Oh. Sometimes if somebody talks about how they're into something or they're not into something else and they frame it as a preference, we need to call it what it is, which is racism. In terms of being fetishized, oh, some red flags I suppose you can look for might be that they only date people of your specific race and that race is different than their own race. Usually when we talk about fetishization, we're talking about white people fetishizing, for instance, Asian women or black men. And nobody wants to be dated because we are a notch on a belt. The other thing I'm seeing more of is people dating people from multiple cultures as a badge of honor. And they say, well, I've dated a Filipino. I've dated a Chinese person. I've dated a black person. I've dated even, an, I had somebody write on Facebook the other day, even an indigenous person. Ooh, does that make you special? Let me be very clear. You can have sex with, you can even marry people who are people of color and that does not, not a racist make you. So how do you debunk a sex myth with your parents, your immigrant parents? Sometimes in every relationship, whether it's parent-child or an intimate relationship, explaining the why, why something matters to you, can be more effective than just giving the facts. So yes, if you can you know, give them an article to explain it to them, that can be helpful. But also if you can explain why it matters to you, because then they're going to feel a little bit more empathetic. They obviously love you and care, and they might be more inclined toward listening. So why is it that if you're a girl, you're told not to date at all, and then you turn like 22, all of a sudden they bombard you with, <laughs> where are my grandkids? Talk about zero to 100. Any witty responses to make them stop would be great. I'm still practicing that abstinence you taught me in my teen years. <laughs> or, or even, you know, first I'm not supposed to have sex, now I'm supposed to have all the sex and get pregnant. Back off. Or I am not a baby maker. Or my uterus is not an oven. <laughs> And with that, we've reached the end of our episode today. Born and Raised Love is hosted by me, Aldonado. And me, Alicia Sani. 
Our producers are TK Matanda, Stephanie Werner, and Aldenado. Hey, hey. Our executive producers are Lisa Young and Andre Lau. Additional production work courtesy of Maya Kapler, Katie Jensen, and Vocal Fry Studios. A special thanks to all our guests, Tony Tran, Jess O'Reilly, Mari Ramsewak, Brian Trin, Chanel Liu, and Gabrielle Sonona. So if what you heard today got you hot and bothered for more, <laughs> well, there's good news. You can see photos of our guests, show notes, and read a transcript of this episode at huffpost.ca. We promise it's safe for work. <laughs> Tune in for our next episode. It sounds a bit like this. She had looked out the window and she said to Dad, Charlie, there's a bloody big horse outside and it was a moose. <laughs> Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>